Have you ever got up in the morning and you did something or something happened to you and you said, oh, it's going to be one of those days? Well, somebody submitted an article that said, here's a few ways you can tell if you're going to have a rotten day. Number one, you see a 60 Minutes news team in your office. Number two, you call suicide prevention and they put you on hold. Your twin sister forgets your birthday. You can tell it's going to be a rotten day when your car car horn goes off accidentally and remains stuck as you follow a group of hell's angels on the freeway. You can tell you're going to have a bad day when your income tax check bounces. You can tell it's going to be a rotten day when you put both contact lenses in the same eye. I have actually done that. You wake up in the hospital all trussed up and your insurance agent tells you that your accident policy covers falling off the roof but not hitting the ground. Of course, there are many people who in their suffering have suffered far worse than just a daily incident. There are some who have an experience with pain that lasts beyond a day, beyond a week. There's an episode of pain. I think of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a British preacher of the Victorian era, He has written more Christian books on the Bible than any other writer in history. A godly man who suffered from gout, a congenital arthritic condition, and depression. In fact, he told his congregation one Sunday morning, he said, I have suffered to the extent and the depths of which I hope none of you ever has to face. Peter in his epistle said, We rejoice even if we suffer for a season, if need be. And some of us have short, some of us have long seasons of pain. We don't like them, but listen to what this suffering Charles Spurgeon wrote. He said, I believe the hardest-hearted, most unlovely Christians in all the world are those who have never had much trouble. And those who are the most sympathizing, loving, and Christ-like are those who have had the most affliction. He concludes... The worst thing that could ever happen to any of us is to have our path made too smooth. Job could never be accused of having a smooth path or an ivory tower relationship with God. He lost it all. And this book shows his loss. Most people, when they approach the book of Job, say, Oh, yeah, Job, that's a book about suffering. No, it's not. It's a book about a man who suffered. It's not a dissertation on maladies and suffering. It's about a man who suffered and grappled with his relationship with God, with his wife, with his friends, and with Satan. It's a comprehensive book about a man who suffered. His friends come along. We won't get all the story today, but his friends come along and they offer philosophies as to why he is suffering so much. They're looking from afar, pondering a suffering man, saying, well, I think the reason you're suffering is there's sin in your life. Job himself questions his own suffering. He doesn't understand it. He asks why. But what is interesting about Job 
is that he does not question the fact that he suffers, just the extent of his suffering. Why am I going through so much of it? That's the perplexity to Job. Not the fact that he is suffering, but the amount of suffering. And so he asks why. Folks, it's okay to ask why. Why do good people suffer bad things? Why do God's people suffer bad things? But whenever a person asks that question, it's very revealing. It reveals that a person has made certain assumptions. Number one, it assumes that that person believes in a set of moral values. Why do bad things happen to good people? Those are values. And it reflects that there's a basic set of values underlying that person's life. Otherwise, you'd never ask the question. Secondly, it assumes that there is order in the universe. Because when bad things happen, we say, hey, that shouldn't have happened. Something is wrong. It's out of order. It also assumes when you ask that question that people are important, that people are at a higher level than animals or plants. We're not just a biological organism. You never ask that question about plants. Why do bad things happen to good plants? But you ask that question about people because you believe naturally that people are at a higher level. And it also assumes that there are answers to be found, albeit you may not understand everything or all the answers about suffering. You wouldn't ask that question unless you believe there are some resources, some answers that would help me get through this life. Now, this morning in Job chapter 1 and 2, we're going to look at a few things. First of all, the character of a godly man is given to us in the first few verses. A picture is painted about who he is, the character of a godly man. And then the scene will shift to a heavenly scene, and we're going to see the critic of a godly man. That's the devil. And then eventually, under God's permission, the crushing of a godly man, and eventually the confessions of a godly man. Look at verse 1 with me, and we see a little character sketch. There was a man in the land of Uz. This is not Oz. Uz is another word for Edom, east of the Jordan River, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. That's a mouthful. It says that this man was blameless. The Hebrew word tam means complete. He was complete. He had no moral deficit. Then it says he was upright, a word that means straight. It speaks of a person who goes straight ahead and doesn't veer off the path. Also, it gives us his motivations and his actions. Notice it says, he feared God and he avoided or he shunned evil. The whole idea is this. Here's a man without any moral blemish at all. It doesn't mean he was perfect. It means that there was no moral blemish. He was following a straight path, following the Lord wholeheartedly. He didn't veer off the path. He was a man without blemish, and he served God without any ulterior motive. Is that important? It is very important. Because there are some people today who look and they say, uh, Job was a sinner, that's why he suffered. In fact, much of the faith theology that says Christians should never suffer, Christians should always have the best, you don't have to receive sickness, they have to deal with Job somehow. 
they have to get rid of Job somehow. And so they will twist the text. They impugn him. They say the problem with Job was his mouth. His mouth got him into trouble. He was a product of negative confession. But it says here he was blameless and he was upright. You would say, yeah, but notice the title of the book, Skip. It says the book of Job. He wrote it, didn't he? I mean, anybody can embellish their own character. Hey, I'm a nice guy. I'm upright. I follow the Lord. I'm blameless. Except most scholars believe Moses wrote this book, not Job. He was a contemporary, no doubt, with the patriarchs. But either way, let's just look over at verse 8, see what God says about him. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in the earth. Blameless, same word. Upright, same word. One who fears God and shuns evil. Now that should end the notion that says godly people never suffer. Or if you suffer, you're being punished by God. Or there's sin in your life or you don't have enough faith. That's bogus. There's no one who deserves suffering less than Job. But there are few people who suffered more. This also shows us that God doesn't always heal people the way we'd want Him to. God is not obligated or obliged under the atonement to heal people. And that's also seen in the New Testament, not just the Old Testament. I'd like you to listen carefully to Michael Green. He puts it very much in perspective when it comes to healing. He says, God does not always choose to heal us physically. And perhaps it is as well that He does not. Oh, how people would rush to Christianity and for the wrong motives if it carried with it an automatic exemption from sickness. What nonsense it would make of Christian virtues like long-suffering, patience, endurance, if instant wholeness were available for all of the Christians who are sick. What a wrong impression it would give of salvation if physical wholeness were perfectly realized on earth while spiritual wholeness were partly reserved for heaven. What a curious thing it would be if God were to decree death for all of His children while not allowing illness for any of them. Good point. Here's a blameless man, upright man, complete, following God for the right motivations. And, as you go on in verse 2, he was a man who was blessed. He had seven sons and three daughters. He had ten kids. Wow. Somebody once said, the difference between a man with ten million dollars and a man with ten children is that the man with ten million dollars always wants another million. never satisfied. I think Job was satisfied. The Psalms say, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. God had blessed him with children and he had prospered him financially. For we read also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. He had a very large household so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. In Hebrew, the word is heaviest. Largest. It doesn't speak of the fact that he was fat or overweight. The idea is that he was notorious. He had quite a reputation. God had prospered him and enlarged this man in his prosperity. Then look at verse 5. He was consistent in his devotional life. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course. Job would send and sanctify them, would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. That's the number of his family. For Job said... 
It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Job may have figured, you know, my kids, I'm worried about them, and they may not be following God as closely as they should. Just in case they're not, I'm going to get up every morning and offer a burnt sacrifice for them, and I'm going to pray for them. He was the priest and the intercessor of his family. This guy was a godly man. That's the character of Job. Now, in verse 6, the scene shifts. The spiritual camera pans off of the earth, and we get into a heavenly scene, and into focus come God and the devil. And we now see the critic of a godly man. The interesting thing about all of this is Job has no idea this is happening. We today know that these things happen because we have the book of Job. But at that point, Job figured that his relationship with God was closed. It was just him and God. What he didn't know is that there's a third party, a usurper, an accuser of the brethren, one who accuses us before God day and night, one who seeks to alienate us from God. And backstage is the scene with the devil and with the Lord. And so we read, There was a day when the sons of men, or excuse me, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was also among them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you been? Paraphrased. Where do you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, I've been cruising back and forth to and fro on the earth, walking back and forth in it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered? Look at, look at my servant Job. Very important. We often think of the devil as being in hell. That's where he lives. That's his home. Well, no. One day he will be there. He will be consigned there permanently. Jesus said it was prepared for the devil and his angels, but until then he has reigned to roam the earth. He walks around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's called the God of this world. And he seeks to tempt, to thwart the plan of God. But God says, look at Job. Look at He's upright. He's blameless. He fears the Lord and he shuns evil. So Satan answered and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. You know, a lot of the the question as to why there is evil, why evil exists, a lot of it can be summed up in this super being. Now, I want to back up. To answer the reason why evil exists is a very complex answer. It's a complex problem. There's no pat little answers. You can't say, the devil made me do it. Or you can't blame it on one particular source. It's a combination of things. And we discussed some of them last week. A lot of the blame of evil must be laid directly at the feet of man and woman. A lot of it is our blame. For instance, if you don't eat properly, if you don't exercise properly, if you are involved in bad habits, you're always smoking, you're always drinking, and something happens to you, you can say, Why would you allow this, God? That was a product of your own volition, your own choice, and God has honored your choice. You didn't do the best thing. Plus, 
Look at technology. We have decided to make cars and factories and they uh, put pollutants in the air and acid rain comes and the crops are depleted and the nutritional value is depleted. Yeah, but why would God allow things like Somalia and Ethiopia, the famines around the world? Well, look back again. At one time, that northern plain was fertile. Men cut down the vegetation. The topsoil eroded. It got hot, became a desert. The weather patterns because of that began to change. Men moved south and started doing it all over again. You know, it's always ironic that an American will shake his fist at God and say, why would you allow Ethiopia to happen when in this country the best-selling books are on diets? Something's out of whack with that. The problem is hoarding. And if you're really concerned about it, you'll get involved in easing their pain in the name of the Lord. Though much suffering can be seen as man-made, if you go backstage, you see there is a super being who wrecked havoc from the beginning. He rebelled against God. He caused men to rebel against God. His name is the devil. But we can't blame everything on the devil because we have to cooperate with him and obey those whisperings for that evil to be meted out upon the earth. You know, it's interesting. 70% of Americans in a Gallup poll said they believe in a devil. But only half of them believe that the devil is actually a real super being, a personal being. The others say there's just an evil force. One man went up to a Charles Finney, the revivalist. And he said, you don't mean to tell me you believe in a real, literal devil, a person. How can you believe that? Then he said, easy. You try fighting him for a while. And you'll see if he's real or not. Job didn't know what was happening, but behind the scenes, this conversation of a personal devil and his own personal God is going on behind the scenes. So don't underestimate the devil. He's powerful. He's been around for 6,000 years. He knows how to fight, knows how to tempt. But don't overestimate him. You're going to see here that he can do nothing except by permission. And a lot of times we overestimate him. Listen, Satan at his best day can't come close to the power of Jesus Christ. You don't have to run in fear of the devil. Greater is he that is in you, Jesus, than he that is in the world. And so when the devil starts yelling and roaring and knocking at your door, just say, Jesus, would you answer that for me? I'm not going to get it. Don't stand there. And try to take it all yourself and think that, okay, come on, devil, I'm going to rebuke you, I'm going to talk to you, leave him alone. Let Jesus answer the door. And know that if God allows you to go through a time of suffering or temptation or trial or loss like Job, if you're in the oven, remember again, Jesus has his eye on the thermostat. He's got his hand on you. He doesn't want you to be, like we said last week, a crispy Christian. He knows when to take you out of the oven. He's in control. And so Satan accuses Job and accuses God. But look at verse 8 again, the wording. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? The word considered is a military word. Literal translation would be this. Satan, have you been studying my servant Job in order to lay siege to him like a general would lay siege to a city? It's a rhetorical question. You've been studying Job, haven't you? You've been seeing his life, his uprightness, his prosperity, and you're looking for a way to trip him up, aren't you? Isn't it an amazing thought to think that Satan studies you, knows your weak points, 
He knows those things that are your hot buttons. Remember the conversation Jesus has with Peter? When out of the blue, when Peter was feeling a little bit self-righteous, Jesus said, You know something, uh, Peter? Satan has been asking for you lately. I don't know about you, but that would bother me. What do you mean he's been asking for me? What would you tell him? You want to hear that verse in a more literal translation? Simon, Satan has been asking excessively that you might be taken out of the care and protection of God, that he might sift you like wheat. But Peter, I have prayed for you. Thank you for that P.S. But again, Satan can only operate by permission. He can only operate by permission. In verse 12, there's the accusation. Excuse me, verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you made a hedge around him? You know what his accusation is? He's saying, Lord, don't you realize that Job is simply a mercenary? That the whole reason that he's serving you is because of what you do for him? Don't you know that you've set a hedge about him? You remove the hedge, he won't serve you anymore. He's serving you not because he loves you, but what you give him, what he can get out of you. He's serving you for the gifts, not because he loves the giver. This is a slur actually upon God. He's saying, God, piety, godliness is the worst of all sins because it comes from a selfish motivation. Brings up an important point. Can people serve and love God if God takes away his blessings outwardly? Satan would say, no, no way. Take away the hedge and see what happens. Verse verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The accusation is um, an interesting one. It's along the same lines as what missionary finds when they go to third world countries. Missionaries have a term called rice Christians. Have you ever heard that term? A rice Christian is the term that missionaries apply to supposed converts to Jesus Christ. These are people who say, oh, I love Jesus, I'll make a conversion, because they know that you'll feed them, you'll clothe them, you'll take care of them, and they're doing it only for the outward accoutrements, not for the inward motivation. So they call them rice Christians. They just want a free meal. And Satan says, he's a rice Christian. He doesn't love you because he loves you because of who you are, but what you've done for him. All right, God gives him permission. We have a character of a godly man. We've seen the critic of a godly man. And now... The most distressing part to most of us is this crushing of a godly man. In verse 13, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Now, again, as, as I read through this, try in your mind best as you can to picture the scene. It's rapid fire, blow by blow, an instant kind of a thing that happens. Remember, he's a godly man. He's without moral deficit. He's complete. He's upright. There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabians raided them and took them away, indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep, the servants, and consumed them, and I alone am escaped to tell you. 
While he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided camels, took them away, yes, killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone am escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people. And they are dead. And I alone am escaped to tell you. Job was safe, prosperous, comfortable. He woke up and he would say, Oh, Lord, thank you. For my sons and my daughters, I pray for them this morning. And perhaps it was right after that morning devotional time as he was praying for his sons, for his daughters, making intercession, that the servant came with the bad news. Out of nowhere, without any kind of warning, instantly his life was changed. He thought himself perhaps impenetrable. Job's life reminds me of that ship that was spoken about, 46,000 tons of metal. The advertisers called it filled with the latest gizmos to protect it, and it was the safest vessel. But on its maiden voyage in 1912, at 2 o'clock in the morning, the Titanic sunk after striking an iceberg. Without warning, down it went. Without warning, everything was gone from Job's life. He was stripped completely. Now, before you listen to his response, it gets worse Chapter 2, there's another scene in heaven, a conversation between Satan and God. Verse 3, the Lord said to Satan, Hey, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, one who fears God and shuns evil. Same advertisement. And he still holds fast to his integrity, though you incited me against him to, to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin... Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But you stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you took away his property, you took away his family, enough to make anybody resent you and run from you, but you start afflicting him physically. Let him waste away in his flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Look at this scene. He took for himself a potsherd, a broken piece of a pot, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of ashes. What a picture. He'd lost everything. His friends are about to forsake him. His wife is about to forsake him. He's lost his kids, everything he owns. Destitute. Completely empty. Crushed. What will he do? What will he do? What will he say to the Lord? And the rest of the book of Job describes that. We'll take a few parts of it in the next couple of weeks, but not all of it. Well, look, <coughs> excuse me, look back to chapter 1. Verse 20. Now we have the confessions of a godly man. After all that happened, listen to him. Then Job got up, he arose, he tore his robe, sign of a highly emotional state, it's to rip the garment from the neck downward, which was an ancient Near East way of saying, I am deeply consumed by trouble. 
He shaved his head, sign of mourning. He fell to the ground. And notice, he worshipped. I want you to notice a couple things about that response. Number one, he's not stoic. He doesn't say, I'm a man. I can't show emotion. Why, men don't cry. I'm just going to bite my lip and go for it. No, he showed emotion. But he didn't answer it with a trite hallelujah. It wasn't a hyper-spiritual response. He grieved. He had deep sorrow. But then he balances it out with his philosophy of life in relationship to God and his possessions. Listen to what he says. He said, Naked I have come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Sometimes God will calm the storm. Other times God will let the storm rage on and calm the child. The storm rages on. And Job's sentiment is, hey, God has given and God has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the confession of a godly man. Okay, well, look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 9. After he was hurt physically, boils all over his body. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Who needs advice like that? Whatever happened to for better, for worse, in sickness and in health? It's the last thing you need to hear when you're suffering is somebody come up and condemn you with that. What are you doing being so godly? Just get it over with. Curse God and kick the bucket. On with you. When people suffer, here's a good lesson right here. When people suffer, be careful what words you use. Choose them carefully. Walk softly around a broken heart. That's the general rule. Walk softly around a broken heart. Words can be harsh. Words like, well, if you'd have believed God, it never would have happened. Or, words can seem very trite. Very cliched. In contrast to Job's wife, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, his friends come to him. And and look at verse 11. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. That's a good response. They saw the depth of his aggravation. They didn't say a word, but they did sit with him. They were around him. They were supporting him. Now, they should have stayed like that. The problem is, the next several chapters, they open their mouth. And that's okay to open your mouth if you say the right things, but they said all the wrong things, and they kept going on and sort of dissecting Job's spiritual walk. Would you please listen to some of the best advice I have ever heard on comforting a bereaved person? This person says, Don't try to prove anything to a survivor. An arm around the shoulder, a firm grip of the hand, a kiss... Yes, these are the proofs that grief needs, not logical reasoning. Once I was sitting, I was torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly about it, and he said things that I knew were true, but I was unmoved, except to wish that he would go away. He finally did. And another came and sat beside me. He did not talk. 
He did not ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, and prayed simply. And then he left. I was moved, and I was comforted, and I hated to see him go. Curse God and die. I'm sure Job was thinking, leave, please. His friends sat with him, but pretty soon they will say, well, Job, everybody knows that godly people don't suffer these things. And Job will even express it. Please leave. Miserable comforters are you all. When pain comes into your life, it will move you in a couple different directions. First of all, it will move you away from God. It can, it can, if you let it. You can move away from God and say, why did you allow this misery to happen? Or it can move you toward God to get resources to handle it. Pain, suffering, affliction will either break your back or bend your knee. And that is your choice alone. No one else's. For some people, they become bitter, angry at God, bitter at other people. And when pain and bitterness are mixed together, that person becomes very self-centered and complains all the time. And guess what? They find that people just don't want to hang around them. They don't have many friends. They just drive people away. That's why the writer of Hebrews said, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and no bitter root grows up to cause trouble that can defile many. Also, some people become very resentful. And what happens is when a suffering person gets worse in a suffering and they see well people who don't value them as a person, that causes resentment. And part of that's a product of our society, folks. You know, our society doesn't tolerate suffering and pain much. We want them out of sight, out of mind. And that's a tragedy. You know how many people I've talked to who have suffered, who have lost a loved one, who've had a long-term illness? They'll say something like, I remember getting cards and letters and phone calls the first few weeks and months. And now the mailbox is empty. And the phone is silent. And I resent those people who are well. You've got to fight that if you're one of those people who have been involved in a long-term illness to not become resentful. That's the nature of human beings. They're not perfect. The best response is Job's response. And that is an active trust in the Lord. In fact, in chapter 13, listen to what Job says. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Though he slay me, I mean, this is bad, but even if God kills me, I'm still going to trust Him. That is active trust in the living God. You know, you might look at the book of Job this way. The theme of the book of Job could be entitled, Why do I serve God anyway? Why do I serve God anyway? And you should ask yourself that question. Why do you serve God? Will you serve the Lord if you lose your health? Will you serve God if you lose a loved one? Will you still serve God if God is silent and you think He should be talking? Do you have a cutoff point where you say, All right, now I suffer this, but that's no way. I'm out of here. The accusation that Satan brought against Job was false. 
in all of the affliction and all of the loss, he said, I came in naked, I'll leave naked. Good or evil. In fact, look at the end of that little conversation with his wife after she says, curse God and die, verse 10, chapter 2. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. He rebuked her. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept evil or adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Dave Dravecki had a tremendous career as a pitcher for the San Francisco Giants. He had an operation on his arm. Cancer was found in his pitching arm. They removed half, 50% of the strong muscle that he used to pitch those hard fastballs. 50% removed. He decided to make a comeback to overcome adversity. It was very difficult, but his career was at stake. He rehabilitated himself. He got back on the road, got back in the game, and he started touring the country telling people, even Christian groups, how to overcome adversity. Not only did he give speeches about it, but he went on to defeat the Cincinnati Reds in a great pitching streak, great victory, with that arm that had surgery on it. After the game, with tears in his eyes, so excited, he wept and he said, it's a miracle. And everybody agreed with him. Five days later, his arm broke. He was taken into the hospital. He said, whatever it is, Doc, I'm going to get over it. I'm determined to make a comeback. The doctor found another bigger mass of cancer, and he lost his arm. It was amputated. Dave Dravecki was then interviewed by the Los Angeles Times. And on record, he said this to the Los Angeles Times. Nobody ever promised that life would be fair. Everybody is going to have adversity. The only way to handle it is to take our eyes off of our own circumstances and put them on the Lord. Great to read that in the Los Angeles Times. A man who suffered firsthand loss. The only way to handle it is to put your eyes on the Lord. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord.